Hello and welcome to another edition of the Copcast podcast. Uh, we're coming to you after Liverpool 3, Bayern Munich 4. It all feels very Roy Evans. It all feels very Brendan Rodgers. It all feels very Jurgen Klopp. Um, I don't know what, he, what season that was. 17, 18? Uh, yeah, one of the early yeah, ones. One. Um, and I've got Andy Bell and I've got nobody else because um, Johnny Henderson has decided that Donegal Guinness is more important than this, which... To be yes. fair, absolutely disgraceful. Drink, you're getting too drunk and knocking on the podcast. Couldn't be me. Yeah, to be fair, I can't disagree with him. You know, I can't disagree with him. Um, so look, we'll kick off with the Bayern game, Andy. Um, four three. We're two 0 up, and the first goal, Gakpo just is is majestic, just generally. But he plays that neat one too, and he just, I love seeing big, tall players that are really, really quick. I think there's something just so amazing about that. Um, but like he's 6'4", and he just eats up the turf, and you think, square at the Salah. Uh, I think he does the keeper and kind of feeds it into the, the near top corner. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, I'd probably prefer him just to roll that across the box. But he sticks it in the net and, you know, we score a set pace. Van Dijk, great. That's exactly what we want to see. And then it becomes a bit silly, doesn't it? And we've seen this, you know, probably three times this preseason where we've allowed games to become a little bit silly because, A, we don't have the personnel. B, there's been loads of changes. C, we're probably not quite sure how to play this this system but I think what's really interesting for me is towards the end of last season I think it was the 9 or 10 games maybe 11 games we win the majority of those by gold so we're actually pretty defensively solid playing that way and that appears to have all gone completely out the window yeah I mean first thing just in your last point it's it's worth remembering, like, we did have quite a favourable run-in. You know, we did, once we played City, Chelsea and Arsenal, I think it was pretty much every game was was winnable on paper. Um, And I know that winnable games on paper were an issue for us earlier in the season, and we defended poorly in those games. So and actually, like, overall, our record against the bottom 10 is pretty woeful last season. I went to Leeds, and when we were on the coach to Leeds, we were talking about, um, and that, this was what, 17th of April, I think that game was. It's really weird that I remember that exactly. But we'd been in a European Cup final more recently than we'd scored an away goal against the bottom 10. It was like Bournemouth would lost 1-0, Everton was 0-0, um, Forrest would lost 1-0. You know, every single one we hadn't scored against the, away against the bottom 10, which is just a, like a crazy record. And it shows that obviously... You know, with this system, as we'll come on to talk about, we're we're scoring goals at ease and scoring goals at will, and it looks like the front three are just going to feast this season and get brilliant numbers. Um, and McAllister and Salvesline might add a few themselves, so you know we could be in for like a real sort of, as you say, a Rogers or Roy Evans in early days Jurgen Klopp season. And Andy, um, that's sorry, just to cut across here, but it's not a front three; it's actually a front five, isn't it? In, yeah, because, in theory, it's two number tens, really, isn't there? At this point, no, but I, I'd argue there were two number oh, 10s last season mean, all the time. I don't mean the two number 10s. I mean, for ever in a day until Jota came in, we've had three, and it's been three. And it's been the front three. All of a sudden now, 
you've got five bona fide Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, so I'm with you. You know, so it's not necessarily just the front three. You have an unbelievable wealth of attack and talent there that, look, all of them have delivered on the goals and assists front in pre-season. They've filled their boots, you know, they're at the buffet table and they're having an absolute blast and McAllister and, and uh, Sabosna are, are, are facilitating that. So, and we didn't score loads of goals last season. Let's all be, be very honest about that. Um, I, think I think that... I saw a stat. If you take out our three big wins, the 9-0, the 7-0, and the 6-1, in the other 35 games, we only scored 52 goals. Yeah, that I think it's something like the, those three games um, are something like percent of, of our games over the season. That's I think it's over twenty percent of the goals that we scored in those three games. Yeah, twenty-two out of seventy-five, nearly. That's nearly. That's about thirty percent. Yeah. Yeah, which is which is mad. Um, so the interesting thing I think you know, Moose Alec can more or less do anything. He's a playmaker. He can get to the byline, but he can also get in the right positions all the time. And he's kind of the all-rounder. But I think the other four are all good players, some better than others. You know, I mean, you're sort of on the same page with Nunez, but they all offer something different. And, you know, what I will say about Nunez is he compliments Salah very well in the sense that Salah's brilliant when he operates, like, on the corner of the box. You know, the one where he floats that cross in for Jota, similar position to where he floats a cross in for Mane in the Champions League against City at home. Uh, the actually a similar position where he floats the cross in for Mane against Bayern with the outside of his foot. Yeah, it, it, I think he's best in that position. Like he's, he's literally lethal. He puts balls in which just can't be defended. And the whoever's on the end of it just needs to, to direct it in. He's so lethal in that area. But also Darwin offers him that little burst in behind where even teams who've, who've got a really deep line, his little burst can get in behind them now. What he does when he gets the ball in behind is questionable, but I think he's probably one of the only players in our team. You know, Gakpo's not really making that run. Um, Gakpo is, you know, at Kyogre at times where he's a little bit deep, but again, in, in the counter-attacks against good teams, literally, as we saw from the first goal, he's he's unstoppable. And, you know, I still think he's he's the number one striker as, as far as I'm concerned. And it's not even really a horses for courses thing. It's just, I think he's our best striker for every game. Jota might have something to say about that and I love Jota as well and then like, Diaz and Jota are just like the complete opposites of each other Diaz does really sexy things sometimes in useless areas but even he's got I think two goals this preseason and like when, when Diaz scores a goal it's a beautiful goal whereas you can, you can probably count in one hand the number of goals Jota scored for Liverpool that are aesthetically pleasing but Jota over the course of a season given the same amount of games played will score more goals than Diaz um, yeah, it's, that old, it's that old one that Lineker and Shearer talk about it all the time. Um, give me the two yard tap ins. Absolutely. Actually... And Gakpo's great at those. And that, that's what I love about Gakpo because it's very similar yeah. to the ones Firmino used to get. So, yeah, I mean, that first goal is first goal's glorious. It's um, it's exactly, it's exactly, it's a carbon copy of exactly how a Liverpool goal looks like when Gakpo's in the pitch and it's a high line. It's a lovely ball from Jota um, as well into him. The second one, the corner, I think we've been just a little bit better from set piece and a little bit more dangerous. We score uh, Ben Doak's header against Leicester comes from a set piece and Sobba's uh, light just has... Right. You say that, but I think we scored the joint most set piece goals last season. 
that may well be true, but what sticks in my head is just the old fellas behind me screaming at Robertson for not for for hitting the first man every single time. Yeah, I know. But I think for every five times you hit the first man, you you kneel that little. Yeah, and and they're not the you know, people who aren't very intelligent don't uh, understand. They're not deliberately putting it there. It's just yeah, a slight mishit of the whip, isn't it? Yeah, I think hitting the front, hitting the man at the front post is the most frustrating thing from a corner, certainly. But if you're able to deliver that it's almost like a free kick from outside the box that you see go a foot over the bar it's like a it's such a fine line between hitting the first man and like nailing that whip which Robertson does exactly if you can if you can deliver that cross like six inches above the first man's jump then you're probably more likely to score than not and that's what they're aiming for there and that's I think why the first man is hit so often. So uh, like we last season it was pretty much Trent and Robinson taking all our corners, and now Sobislai is uh, a dead ball specialist as well. And against Leicester, he, he just floats one in. His his technique's different to the two of them. Like Trent and Robertson really try and and get whip and try and murder the ball, where Sobislai's more like a, a sort of golf swing, where it's like a really relaxed float into the box, but it's got pace on it, and um, you can just tell he's a he's a really good footballer. So you know that's how we get the second goal. Um, our third goal, you know, is is exactly what you want from Diaz, and exactly what we're uh, a little bit worried that that Diaz might be becoming. I I think like the the questions around his numbers are, are the the question marks around his numbers are a little bit overstated. Like it's inflated as well because his numbers have actually been decent. He scored goals in big games. And... His, num- his numbers have been decent, and like at the start of the season, he hit the post three or four times, and you can say that's bad finishing, but it's probably bad luck. And another season, he scored he hit the post four three or four times against Fulham alone in that first game. That's that's exactly the one that's sticking in my head. I so, think the thing, the thing, I don't know what you think about this, Ali, but the thing with Diaz is I, I kind of see this as kind of the, the Grealish comparison yeah. city where, yes, you, you expect everybody's given Grealish abuse, you know, this amount of assists and hardly any goals and blah, blah, blah. But what he does do that not very many other players in that city side do, and similar with Diaz, probably aside from Salah on the other side, is he draws players to him. He commits men. He disrupts the shape. He very rarely loses the ball. Very yeah. rarely. Well, and, and that's the thing. When he when he does draw players to him and disrupts that shape, he manages to hold on to the ball. And all of a sudden, there's space and gaps that open up. The fullback comes out to him. Maybe the other centre half comes out to him. Maybe even the midfielder comes across to him. And all of a sudden... There's people having to shift across. The two centre halves are, are 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 less connected. The space is bigger between them, and that's when you can penetrate teams. And I think that's the key benefit that Diaz brings to this side. Jota does not do that. It, 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 he brings something completely different, which is fucking pure numbers. I, I don't think anyone else on the side really does it, but the, the criticism is that he's more left midfield than left wing. And there are times where he does something that looks amazing and it's just not in a very good area of the pitch. And, is that uh, not Grealish as well, though? Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Um, but then Grealish this season's gone up a level and he's actually getting on the end of things and he's actually getting himself in central areas and he's actually got himself a few goals. You know, the goal against us being the prime example that the Eddie had. 
Um, and that's what Diaz does in, in the second half with the goal. You know, it's an absolutely marvelous finish, but he drifts in and he he, he finds himself in that area. And I don't I don't think there's any reason why he, he can't do that, along with the things he always does. Um, so you know, I was a bit concerned, I have to say, towards the end of last season with uh, with his performances, just because I think we've been stung by this so much. You know, Torres is a prime example, Michael Owen. Um, but also like even Adam Lalana was such a good player before he got that injury and it just ruined him. Chamberlain the same. So I always just panic when a player's coming back from injury. I'm always like psychoanalyzing just to make sure that they're gonna get back to their level. Because if Diaz gets back to his level, he does start in our team. You do just have to fucking fit him in in the same way. Yeah, I think if he gets back to the level he was, I think I think he was world class, genuinely world class. I think this is really interesting because all those players that you mentioned there, you're absolutely right. But I think, you know, John is the most recent one that probably falls into that category where, he had that, where he had that injury and it took him quite a while to get back to the level that he was. Look, I think with, with short memories, we'll forget the impact Jota had when he first came in. Yeah. Um, playing from the left and, and through the middle. And yes, he went through, it was nearly a year with a torn a goal. But then there was like the summer and like he was injured for a lot of that time, probably even for three or four months at the most. But he also now looks to be like super sharp, pre-season under his belt. And, you know, you say oh, Diaz is nailed on the start. If he is, gets back to his level. Is his level above Jota's level? Because I, in my eyes, they're probably... They're probably both vying for that left hand side position. I think Diaz is very top level, is slightly better than Jota's very top level. Um, but well, but there's more evidence probably that Jota's got back to that. You know, Jota's got the, the tail end of a Premier League season plus a preseason where he's just looked sharp as hell. Whereas Diaz has only really had the last couple of games of preseason. So I'm not saying that that is going to happen, but if they do get back to it, like when Diaz came in, if you'd have asked Jurgen Klopp in that January when it was Salah, Mane and Firmino, and albeit Mane was a little bit in decline, we were still pretty much in around the top of the league and that was the front three. Um, if you'd have told, you know, if I'd have asked you or I'd have asked Jurgen Klopp, FA Cup final, League Cup final and Champions League final, which one of these do Diaz start? It's, it, there's, you could have had an argument for none of them just because he hadn't earned that right yet. And he ends up starting in all three of them. That's how good he was when he came in. And I think it's just forgotten, like, just how much he fitted into our side. And I'm just... he, he's, he's, he's man of the match in the, maybe the League Cup final and the FA Cup final. He's definitely man of the match in the in the FA Cup final, isn't he? It's and, one uh, of the other, if not both. But yeah, he, he absolutely tortures them. And he's really unlucky to be taken off against Real Madrid, I think. I still don't really get that. But then he was he was taken off quite a bit that season. Like there was a thing about him not doing ninety, wasn't there? So I don't know. But um, they they were our goals, and then the the going backwards was the was the issue. And I, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about the system. But the uh, I'll 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 let you go on this. But the main issue with the system is that when we lose the ball, if there's a quick turnover, we've got two defenders because the right backs playing centre mid, and the left backs playing left wing. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting debate that's happening at the minute. Um, Andy Robertson's getting all kinds of abuse because apparently he's not doing what he is supposed to be doing, according to um, the the Twitter UFB licensed coaches that are all out there. Um, I think it's interesting that 
people just you know analyze where they think players should be and what they think players should be doing when actually and i've said this a lot you actually don't know unless you are in those training sessions sitting watching the videos sitting listening to the Klopp's lectures and and his instructions pre-match post-match training etc etc if someone like Robertson was consistently not doing what he is being asked to do a la Darwin Nunez from the pressing from the front perspective the simple fact of the matter is he won't get selected but he keeps getting selected so I think that there is a debate to be had that isn't currently being had around is Robertson being caught significantly out of position because it is his natural instinct just to bomb forward and leave gaps at the back? Or is there a coaching element here that we are trying to get right and trying to see if that is possible for him to do that? Because I can't imagine that he would continue this behavior in the pitch if it wasn't a direct instruction from the manager no he, he's being told to do it there's no doubt about it but there is actually a quote from i think it's from the arsenal game which is, if memory serves me correct it's the first time we actually see this system in action and Klopp literally says if trent's you know if one goes forward the or if trent's in midfield you know robertson can't can't play like he is so then he has to sort of become like a a left center back but he's not and you know I I don't know. I've got in my head a little bit that it's you know the old thing that's always thrown at Klopp around is loyalty, and he doesn't want to restrict Robertson in how he plays because there's no doubt you are restricting Robertson. Now, as I think we'll come on to talk about, I think Robertson there's a chance Robertson can play that position even if we do change it, but you are massively restricting him, and I'm, I'm sure he doesn't want to do that, but. I don't know, Andy. I think that I think this is an interesting time for Andy Robertson. What is he, 29 or 30? Yeah. I think given a lot of his game is based on energy up and down the pitch, getting to that byline. Um like let's let's think about it. You know, quintessential Andy Robertson moment is when he like presses 18 Man City players yeah. um, and probably runs like probably 800 meters to do so. Um, covers half the pitch. That's what we see when we think of Andy Robertson. He's on borrowed time when it comes to playing that way. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm 42. I know it better than most people. Um, so I feel like this could be the right time for Robertson to start to adapt and transition his game into a different area of the pitch and still become a functional part of this side. I I, 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 yeah. I completely agree, yeah. And I, the thing we forget about Robertson, you're right, that is what you think of. You think of the, the pressing in the, the Man City example, um, which was his real sort of breakthrough moment because Alberto Moreno actually plays most of the first half of that season because he was actually really good, bizarrely, um, after costing us European Cups and this, that and the other. But the, the thing you forget about Robertson is not only was... Because there was no doubt about it. For a while, Robertson was the best left back in the world. I don't think he still is, but he, he was the best left back yeah, in the world. It's only for a two-year period. Let's be honest, right? I I would say so. Um, but he was such a brilliant defender in that time as well. You nothing got down that. Okay, he has Van Dijk on his side, and that helps. 
but nothing got down that side. One-on-ones, he was never getting skinned. And you couldn't say that about Trent. Trent was probably offered a little bit more going forward. Not lo- not loads, because their assist numbers were quite similar. But, you know, Robertson was such a good defender. So I, when people write Robertson off and saying that, well, he can't play this way, so he can't play in this system at all, well, why don't we try him at left centre-back and just see if it works? Because, you know, it he, he has got the defensive capabilities. Okay, he's not renowned for being amazing in the air, but how many teams still pump it up to a number nine to hold it up realistically anyway? And if there's three of them there, then it's, it's quite hard to target that side. You know, and there still will yeah. be... And actually, I think one thing that always sticks out for me about Robertson is for all of his attacking qualities... He is very, very effective at defending the back post. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was shocked when um, I think it's the Pavard header that hits the bar because I thought it was Robertson who'd been out jumped. And I was like, that's it's really unusual to see that. And then it turned out it was actually Jota. Um, but, you know, there still will be times where Robertson can actually get down the left wing. You know, if the ball breaks on the left hand side, you know, Robertson's not taking it back towards Van Dyke so Trent can get into midfield. There will be times where he has to bomb on. You know, and Trent just has to cover in. Obviously, ideally, if we've got time and possession, Trent's coming into the midfield and you want to make it a back three, but not every pass you play is going to play out like that. So you're not losing everything um, in the way that he's playing. And I, I don't know, it doesn't seem like a very Jurgen Klopp thing to do to bring in like a, a Nathan Ake and play literally a centre half at, at left back. Um, we may be proven wrong. We know he's after a defender. But it would surprise me if it was if it was like an Ake type. I'm not really sure how Caldwell plays. I've never really seen him play. But um, but, but but that is the issue, isn't it? And I think another issue that we haven't really touched on as much, and I think it's because it's not an issue when Van Dijk and Kanate are on the pitch, but if Kanate's injured, I think it comes a major issue. Is so that... I, actually, I actually said this a few pods ago. Um, I think this system has two single points of failure. And one is Trent because he gives something so specific from that area of the pitch, and the other is is Kanate. So if Kanate yeah. is not there, you can't. You're running a massive risk asking someone else to come in and do essentially what Kanate does, which is play two positions. Yeah, because based on his physicality. No, he does. It. He, Paris is a prime example. He basically plays right back, and he has Vinicius in his pocket all game. Yeah. So, so you know, the, there is a there is a world, or, or maybe not a world, but certainly a parallel universe where Joe Gomez could have been that player. Yeah. As time goes on, it looks less and less likely that Joe Gomez is going to be the player that he was, and this kind of comes back to the. The uh, injury conversation that that you touched on earlier on, Michael Owen, Fernando Torres, you could probably throw Joe Gomez into that yeah. that group as well. But again, I think he comes back from injury part way through last season, or certainly at the start of last season. I don't think he has a preseason last season. Is that fair? I think you're right. So there may be a scenario where after a full preseason. We might see something, and if we get eighty percent of of Joe Gomez, you know, eighteen, nineteen, I think that's that's okay. But there's no guarantee in that as well. So you're right. There are there are single points of failure in this team that we do not have like for like replacements for. Do you know what's interesting actually in the Joe Gomez thing? Um, and it's it's sort of a bit of a moot point because it's never going to happen in a big game. But actually, 
when they play the second half team and Simicas inverts and then Joe Gomez actually does play like a third centre-back on the other side, not how Robertson's playing, you could argue actually look a lot more solid. Well, he's, well, essentially there he's doing what Ben White does for Arsenal, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which, which, which I don't really understand because, you know, we've committed to the inverted fullback, so whether it's Simicas or whether it's Trent, or even when it's Connor Bradley playing there, he was inverting. So we've committed to that, but we're not committed to what we're doing on the other side because if it's Robertson, he's playing like he always played. But if it's Gomez, he's playing like High City and Arsenal and Chelsea play with the third centre-back. Yeah. I think it's interesting. City and Arsenal currently are are doing it on one side, on one side alone. Yeah. And they are, they're compensating for that by playing essentially a centre-half or full-back. Okay? Yeah. So they're throwing all their eggs in the John Stones or the, I don't know whoever it is, Tierney or, or who is it plays that, that side for Arsenal? Um, Sinchenko? Yeah, Tierney Sinchenko, right? And it, it looks like we're trying to figure out a way to flex between, to, to create a scenario where we can, we, we can do the same thing on both sides. Yeah, you know, and we can we can flex within games to go. Actually, you know, it's now the left hand side's turned to be the inverted midfielder, and you know, ten minutes later, it's it's the right back side. It's Trent's turn to go and do that. But what that does is it puts real pressure on the structural aspect of your team to be able to allow for that. But the problem the problem is, you know, as say the left hand side inverts or the right hand side inverts, but what the left side does when the right side inverts is different to what the right side does when the left side inverts, which doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so there's a lot of in- inverted co- conversations going on here, and I think we could really go down a rabbit hole. So, look, there, there's what there's one more thing just to, I want to say on it because I think that you know this season could be verily how we do this season if we keep our first eleven fit or even our first 13, 14, or 15, if you include the strikers in the midfield. If basically, if we keep the defenders fit and keep that back four that we want to play all season, I think we could win the league, but I don't think we will because an injuries will inevitably come. Now, we're saying we need Lavia and at least one more in the midfield. So that'll be four midfielders we've brought in. So we'll have revamped the midfield and that's absolutely fine. But I think probably next summer, you're talking about having to revamp the defence because not only might you need somebody on that left-hand side, when Canadi's injured, I have serious doubts as to whether a current-day Matip or Joe Gomez can come in and do that. So you might end up having to buy three defenders next summer if you don't do one this summer. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think as much as I as much as I used to hate Joe Matip and then loved Joe Matip, and now I'm just like sad that Joe Matip now finds himself playing for a team that he does not function in. Yeah, I know. I understand. You know, um, but look, I, I think, yeah, your, your point is valid. Um, ideally, essentially, if I saw some ridiculous tweet earlier on that in order to challenge me to sign Bellingham, Saicedo, Guardiola, and someone else who was like, probably, this fellow was talking about we he would spend 500 million in the transfer market. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah, um, like not in any realms of reality. Um, but yeah, I think from a numbers perspective and a 
skill set perspective, we need a six. We need probably a defensive-minded eight. So we're talking like, guess what? I know he didn't do anything and he was a ghost and shit, but like a genie went out of him, okay? Yeah. Probably need one of those. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And we probably need a centre half. The issue is we probably need two centre halves. Yeah, if you need, if if you're going to commit to this system, you need... You need a Kanate. You need two Kanates. You need, yeah. you need a Kanate and you need, you need Kanate and you need two Kanates behind him. Because any time we've been solid at the back, we've always had four centre-halves who came in. And I know people take the piss out of Lovren, but in that title-winning season, he comes in and does 10, 15 games, is really good until he's well, people not. Take the, people take the piss out of Lovren and then the same people complain that we didn't replace him, which yeah. is hilarious in itself. But yeah, we need someone that can step in for Kanate because his injury record does not stand up. And we need somebody who can play that left hand, that left-sided centre-half position as well. So basically, we need a player either side of Van Dyke. Yeah, and a and very probably, specific player. And probably one of those guys needs to be able to step in for Van Dyke occasionally as well and play the central role in that back three or whatever we're calling it. Yeah. Yeah, but I think you can probably rely on Van Dyke's injury record at this point because he's not missed a single game bar the freak. No, I get that. I get that. But and I think from a planning perspective, you can. I think it is okay to just say if a freak happens, a freak happens. Yeah, you can't spend forty million pounds a player in case Celtic gets an ACL. It's yeah. just you know, it makes no sense. Yeah. All right, so that's enough about Liverpool's trials, tribulations, issues, and lack of transfer activity. Um, couple of teams to discuss. Let's start with Arsenal. Um, Miguel Arteta continues to make an absolute cunt out of me, Andy. I keep on telling everybody he's great. And to be fair, you know, he has massively improved Arsenal. There's no getting away from it. They're good to watch. Um, they are young, energetic. They play good football. They've got real attacking talent with the likes of Saka, Martinelli. Um, they could probably do with a centre forward. They brought in... Odegaard, la, two years ago, last year, revelation. Parties made a difference, um, and they've got they've got that mentality that they score those last minute goals. Like was it Reese Nelson? Randomness, you know, those, like that for me was nearly the the uh, Federico Mikita moment. You know that Reese Nelson goal. Um, I think it was against Leeds in the last minute. And the Nelson one, I think, is Bournemouth, isn't it? Well, okay, probably. Um, in the last minute, to win, I think you're right, um, to win in the game, and you think, do you know what, though? It's things like that that win, win titles. Now, it used to be things like that that win titles when Pep Guardiola's Qatar, Manchester City weren't around. Um, but they have done essentially what Every Liverpool fan has been crying out for FSG to do for probably three or four years now, which is probably since they, they've done a Van Dyke and Allison, basically, haven't they? They've went out there and thought, you know, we need, we need a, we need 
an, an all-action ball-winning box-to-box playmaker in the midfield. Who's the best about Declan Rice? How much does it cost? 105 million? Fuck it. Let's just do it. And they went and did it because they view him as an absolute game-changer. Um, Havertz is a very Arteta signing. What he's going to do with him, I don't know. Um, I, I feel like he's a better player than we think because I just gen, genuinely don't think Chelsea knew how to use him. And they've signed what a kind of a left, a left back centre half player. Is that what Timber is, or is it a right, a right back centre half player? He's a right centre half, maybe. Yeah. So again, exactly, exactly what they need in that area. Now they, they did what they've done the last few seasons, which is is put themselves in an amazing position, whether it was to qualify for top four or, or to win the league, and. They have absolutely fallen to bits, and you know that, that they'll learn from that. We learn from that. If we remember, we went through those moments, Champions League finals, that absolute embarrassment at Spurs. It was a West Ham game as well, and those are the things that we came back stronger from. So, Arsenal, I don't think, based on all of that and the money that they've thrown about this summer, without really without losing anybody significant. Um, they're, they're, going, they're not a one-season wonder, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. No, I don't see how they can be at this point. You know, you mentioned they've they've made the Van Dyke and the Allison signings, and they're closer to Man City than we were when we made the actual Van Dyke and Allison signings. So, you know, they've given themselves the best chance of closing the gap. Now, I think, as you've mentioned, the levels you need to get to to pip a Manchester City Pep Guardiola side are completely different to the levels you need to get to ten years ago to pip a Ferguson side. They just are, and United supporters get wound up by that. But it's just true. Um, Arsenal would be in a title race a hundred percent any other season, and they may actually still be if they can take themselves to this next level. But it's whether that next level is literally perfect, which it has to be. You know, Rice is is just the perfect signing. He's 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 the perfect midfielder. We would would have loved to have gotten him ourselves, but for whatever reason, we don't do it. We don't pay the money. Havertz, I think, I think someone like Arteta can just turn him into a world class player. I remember watching him at Bayer Leverkusen and thinking, I think it was in that in the COVID season where the Bundesliga comes back first. And I remember thinking, he's the only striker I'd take right now to replace Firmino. I thought exactly the same thing. Um, I looked at, even him at Chelsea, and I was like, the other one that I thought as well uh, was, was Van de Beek. I don't know what's happened to him either, but I think it's funny that their, their careers have kind of been derailed because they're of such specific skill sets that certain managers don't really know what to do with them. You know, Chelsea were the the definition of just a team thrown together and throw everyone in and no tactics, just vibes. And Kai Havertz is almost the antichrist to that that type of of way of setting up and that type of way of doing things. You know, he needs to have a defined role. He needs to have, you know, almost a team worked around him in the same way as you know, Firmino wouldn't have looked half the player if he didn't have the 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 wingers style of Mane and and Salah coming in. Do you know what? It's really a comparison. Like, let's be honest. When we first signed for you know, Brendan Rodgers had no fucking idea what to do with him. Yeah. He did not know how to use him. He, I remember a game he played about right wing back. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, like it's abs- absurd. So I completely get the parallels here because I think I also think a team needs to play in a specific way in order to make use of those players. Van yeah. der Beek at Ajax, um, you know, Van der Beek's at United when, when Ronaldo's there. Two completely different players, and you can't just drop one in and drop one out because you change your entire system. So and Brendan Rogers did the exact same thing with Nuri Sahin, by the way, didn't he? He brought him in and played him in the six. Ugh, let's get away from this for Dave Carr has a bit of a Yeah, and, and the other one, Timber, I, I mean, I don't know much about him, but he, you know, Beryl's probably the man to have in this podcast to uh for for the uh the, the player used to play for Ajax, but you know, 40 million, whatever. Listen, they, they probably did concede a little a few too many goals last season. Seem to have a, a weird habit of conceding in like the first 30 seconds of games. Obviously, you know, Southampton at home, they finished bottom of the league by quite a distance, but they put three goals past them. And those are the types of things that you know you just can't do if you're you're gonna win a league, never mind a league against a Guardiola City. You know, you know, City aren't conceding three goals to Southampton in, in any yeah. scenario. So if he makes them slightly stronger defensively, then that can only, I mean, it's not going to harm them. They've not lost any defenders, as far as I know. So if he's crap, they can just play the lads that were there last year. Um, so, you know, they've gone in and they've bought a world-class midfielder, what I think still can be a world-class striker, and a defender who isn't going to make them any worse. So, uh, yeah, they could be uh, they could be up there again. Yeah, and again, I think parallels to us... Um... I think what Arteta was really, really good at was he just binned off a pile of players. I think he reduced their annual outlay by something like 60 million in terms of getting rid of the likes of Ozil and um, Aubameyang. Aubameyang and who is the other one I'm thinking of? Lacazette? No, that's another one, but there's someone else as well that I can't think of now. But just bomb these guys out. And then again, you know, I think Gwen Doozy, who he was, I think, Eurobellion, a bit like the um, Sacco yeah. situation with us, Eurobellion, get out. Aubameyang, uh, I think it was a case of Eurobellion as well. Yeah, but it was also the money too, do you know what I mean? But he's put Arsenal Football Club in a position where they actually, based on their their wage bill and their, and their general outlay, compared to probably even the likes of Spurs, but certainly ourselves, Manchester United, Chelsea and City, in a position where they can go and, go and spend this money. I think in two or three years' time, when, you know, Martinelli's not getting paid 60 grand a week and Odegaard's not getting paid 80 grand a week or whatever, and all of these players... Um, wage bills start to inflate due to whatever relevant success they have. That is when they may find themselves in a similar position that we're in now. But it'll be interesting to watch them because they they've got some moves, Andy. You know they do. Arteta is not just this pep light parody coach. He's actually got something about him, and if he can sort that fragile Arsenal mentality. And he obviously identifies that as an issue. The only thing is he's doing very Brendan Rodgers things when he's going about trying to sort that out, like like playing like playing um 
you'll never walk alone. They're doing training sessions and yeah. stuff. It's not quite sterling. You know what you said. I know what you said. Uh, you'll be on the first plane home, but yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, who's very, in the, whose name's in this envelope? Fucking none of them. Um, <laughs> it's very easy, I would say, in a uh, documentary like that, where you're heavily editing it to make managers look very David Brent, is what I would say. Um, yeah. And they all have their moments, don't they? Um, it's like listening to those fucking. Uh, you know, like your diary of a CEO podcast where these rich celebrities come on and tell you about their, their secret to success. And it's like, no, you, you were born into money. Yeah. You, you're good at your job and you had a bit of luck. There's, you know, if I like listening to Russell Brand, just spout shit. Yeah. Um, all right. Anyway, Arsenal, great. You're really pleased for you. You're doing well. I never really disliked Arsenal. Um, he's making brave moves as well. Like he's, he, you know, it looks like he might be bidding off Ramsdale to get David Raya in. And you know, when he got Ramsdale in, Burnt Leno wasn't exactly like on the priority list to be replaced. He was a half decent goalkeeper. Um, yeah, totally. you know, he's, he, is, he's, he is very pep ruthless that way. Yeah, and it seems to work for him. But you need to be trusted, and um, he is trusted, and he was trusted, and they wanted him out after a couple of years, but they've stuck with him, and they're reaping the rewards. Yeah, I remember saying to my sister, this is way off pace, and I'm sure anybody who's listening to this is bored now. But this, and after I tell you this, you're even going to be more bored. Um, but my um, sister-in-law's friend lives in London, and she's married to a fella or engaged or whatever, and he's an Arsenal fan. And I remember saying to him, Arteta, stick with him. There, There is. Th- this guy's going places, but she was passed out in the sofa because she was shit-faced. And he was like concerned about her and not really listening to me. So even if I try and tell him I was right and I told you so, he'll probably not even remember. Anyway, um, all right, City, Andy, look, the likelihood is that I think probably more so than any other season, I am. Fairly certain City are going to win the league. Certainly, any of the last four or five years. I think they have a pretty much a free run this year. They, granted, have lost Gundogan, who was a bit of a talismanic figure for them last season. Has been previously, but last season there was just something about him where he just pulled rabbits out of hats more often than not. The FA Cup final being a case in point, you know, but. But Champions League as well, and certainly, you know, throughout the league campaign, um, they have lost Benjamin Mendy. Um, not to prison, shockingly, but to some random French team. And Lorient, where I've been, and it may as well be prison. Okay, right, fine. So, good. No harm um, to any Lorient listeners, which I'm absolutely certain we have none. And um, Mares has gone to Saudi Arabia. And I think, I, I feel like uh, Jan Cancelo has come back, but it looks like he's getting binned off somewhere immediately. I don't even think he's made it back to Manchester before he's been sold again. I think he's like, very much in the Eurobell end category. In the, sorry? Eurobell end category. Yeah, totally. And, and Pep, Pep, this is, I think it looks like he's Pep's Latin. Um I'm trying to see where he is ready to be going, but I think it's all very, very clear that he is going to get a move. 
so they've brought in who have they brought in? Kovacic, and they're bringing in Guardiola. Okay, so Guardiola seems to be a, a bit of a, an issue with that transfer. We would have expected that to be done by only Kovacic. I think is a really sensible sign, and that's a direct replacement for for Gundogan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love him. People think he's crap, but I think he's great. No, he's not crap. Yeah, he's class. Um, and there is now talk of Jeremy Doku, I think, who we were linked with last season. Okay. From, correct me. Uh, can't remember. I think it's Ren. That sounds right. Um, so, City and the... We sat here this time last year and chatted absolute shite about, you know, it's it's going to take them ages to get used to Holland and it's it's not going to work and blah, blah, blah. And for a while that looked like it might have been the case, but it, it wasn't very long and we have our own issues to deal with. Um, they don't do their super 90 plus. I think they, what, they finished in 89 points or something. But they play the kids last day and lose to Brentford, I think, so say 90. Yeah, but still, they don't break 80 points. Yeah, they don't break 90 points, right? Yeah. Um, but I can't see them being weaker this season than they were last season. Um, and I feel like there is a real cohesion between the likes of De Bruyne, Haaland, Grealish. It looks devastating three to deal with and they are joint with Newcastle the best defensive force in the league last season and that's something I don't think Guardiola probably gets enough credit for they're so for the way they play they're so defensively solid and that for me is going to be a real key difference between us and City because if you remember and I'm sure you do it's not those front three win us the league it's the fact that we jump two or three levels in our defensive solidity. Yeah, completely agree. Um, you know, the only season we've actually won the league, we were so defensively solid. Like, we were nearly breaking records that season. I think we, nearly, we for a while we thought we might actually break Chelsea's record of, what was it, 13 conceded in the season? That seems actually a bit low. Maybe it's like something like 17, but it's less than 20 anyway. And then we the, the wheels fall off when COVID hit, and that's absolutely fine. But that's how defensively solid we had to be to win the league. And you know, people hark back to 13-14 and say, Well, yeah, we challenged for the league in 13-14. Well, we get 84 points in 13-14, which doesn't really get you anywhere near the league these days. And also we're probably a little bit lucky to get that many points for the quality of the team we had. You know, we really were riding on the absolute crest of a wave. So, you know, I completely agree. I think there's there's not many ins and not many outs, but I think you're you start at the front. So Mares is gone. And like Mares, I, I do love Mares. He's a good player. He gets good numbers. But when you look at the likes of Grealish and Foden and well, De Bruyne, well, I mean, Mares basically kept Foden on the bench for the majority of last season. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Foden, Foden can sort of play across the front three. And we've seen this before, you know, for the last three transfer windows he's been wanting to pump Bernardo Silva apparently and Bernardo Silva always plays and always has big moments in the season so I basically have no doubts that they'll be able to replace Mares with their in you know internally in their squad if not with someone like Doku who'd I'd be surprised if they sign but um I do think he's a good player. Then you look in the midfield and you're absolutely right. 
Gundogan for Kovacic, there's not much of a difference in quality between the players there. Possibly Gundogan scores you more goals and comes up with more big moments, but the main selling point for a Pep Guardiola City team is not the individuals and it's not the goals they score. It's fitting into the system. And the way Kovacic can just take the ball on the run and carry it and progress forward, he's just going to fit right in there 100%. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a quintessential Guardiola midfielder. He is skillful, press-resistant, can pass the ball, um, tactically astute, intelligent, just does the sensible thing all the time. And, you know, for me, when Wijnaldum left, I was like, of all the players in world football that we could have, give me him. Because that's exactly what he does. And this is a game, I think he's underappreciated in the same way Wijnaldum was. And I, I read something, I don't know how reputable it was, but I read something that Pep Guardiola was very keen on signing Bajcetic before we did, and that doesn't surprise me at all with the, the type of player Bajcetic is and how natural he is just turning into those spaces. He's very sort of a Kovacic-esque at times too. Um, and then the final swap is the is Guardiola. Well, it's it's not really a swap, but Nathan Ake wins, you know, starts in the FA Cup final, they win it. Starts in the European Cup final, they win it. Starts pretty much all season at left-back except he's actually playing like a left centre-back when Stones inverts in the Premier League and they win it. So they've won everything with Aki at left-back and they've probably improved on that. So just shows you the ruthlessness. I think they're going to be as strong, if not stronger. And yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's one of those things, you know, in the season where we've gone toe-to-toe with City, especially the quadruple season, you can say that there was a difference in quality between the two sides, but we do have actually a good record against them. Like I read somewhere that the last time that City did the double over us was before the war we actually have a really good record against them so you know the thing you have to remember is you don't play City every week if you can get a win against them at home as as we did last season as we do last season and as we as we have done pretty much you know when was the last well they beat us at Anfield in the uh, in the COVID season but apart from that I don't think they've beaten us at Anfield since like the 90s or something ridiculous so if you if you level it out, say you beat them at home and you lose away, then who finishes who finishes higher is based purely on your results against the other thirty six teams. So I wouldn't get too caught up in the difference in in quality. You know, I think we'll always give them a game at Anfield, and we'll always give them a game away from home. And you know, we need to focus on on getting the points against the bottom teams like we didn't last season. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you say that. Um, it was always what Wenger was really good at. Now, don't get me wrong, for, for a long time, it was like, we'll finish fourth every season. Um, but they would spank the bottom 10 home and away. Yeah. And you do that. There's Ferguson 60... was the same. Sorry, sorry? Ferguson was the same. Yeah. But there's 60 points. Do you know what I mean? Bottom 10, home and away, there's 60 points available. If you can pick up 50 points there... 55 points there. You know, it's generally about 70, 71 points that will get you top four. Um, and then you see where you go f- from there. And, and it might be that it might be that what we're seeing in pre-season is to try and address those issues because actually our results against as bad as we were last season, 
And if you want to take the city away game aside, when we went to the Etihad, probably at our lowest ebb, we beat City at home. I think we beat Spurs home and away. Yeah. Chelsea, we get two draws. Arsenal, we get robbed at the Etihad. Or, sorry, robbed at um, the Emirates. And, and we should we should win. We should win we, at Anfield. We should win. Yeah, we should win. And Newcastle, we beat home and away. Yeah. So And United, we beat at home. So United, we beat at home. And we're not great when we go there, but I think it's only 2-1, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, and we absolutely smashed them at Anfield. So if you're Jurgen Klopp and you're looking at that, you're thinking, okay, Brentford we struggled against like most teams do because of their very unorthodox style of play. It's a, it's a style of play you're only going to come up against twice a season. So it's really difficult to manage that. Um, Brighton, again, Klopp's been like this. When it's a new manager and a new system, it takes him a little while to get the grips with it. I think we were at that game. That was Deserby's first game, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And it was one of those weird situations where I think there's quite a small period of time between the home and away game, the way the fixture computer fires it out. Brighton? Yeah. Yeah, we play, we, we get beat 3-0 at the end of January, don't we? Yeah, but I think is it what? We, we play I, them away in the cup a couple of weeks after that, which might be what you're thinking of. Maybe it is, but but again, you would expect that Klopp will have done his due diligence now, and that might be a very different sort of game this season. But where where we absolutely shaft ourselves are against you know Bournemouth away from home, um, Fulham away from home, uh, Everton away from home, um, Jesus, who else? Forest. Oh, Forest, God, yeah. I think we don't beat Leeds at home, do we? Uh, no, we get beat by Leeds at home. Yeah. Do you know? And these are the games that maybe he's looking at going, we don't score enough goals last season. We need to find a way to absolutely destroy these teams that we did not. Wolves as well, sorry. Yeah. We need, to find, we need to find a way to beat these teams because see those top six guys? We have that sussed. We have that sorted. So this is actually the issue we have to address. And that's generally the way I feel about the forensics and the forensic lens that the football clubs now put on um, assessing previous games, previous seasons, previous performances. Yeah, I, funny enough, you, you're sort of saying exactly, I was having a bit of a debate with uh, Neil Atkinson the other night, which is a brave move in itself. But he was basically saying that this new system will will make us more proficient at, at you know at scoring and, and beating those those bottom sides and even like Brentford at home and Fulham at home we, you know I think they're, they're and Wolves at home I think we win them all one nil and we don't really create a lot in those games so even in the games that we do pick up three points in we we could improve our performance levels the theory is that this system and especially the the five up front. Uh, when I say that, I mean the actual two midfielders and the three who we select to play up front. Yeah, you know, will will carve out more chances, and I think that is true. But where I'd be slightly wary is if you just say play this system, and all of a sudden it's definitely going to make us easier, uh, going to make us better at beating these bottom ten sides. That kind of assumes that the bottom ten sides all pack everyone behind the ball and have no interest in entering our half. 
which isn't the case. If that was the case, then absolutely this system would be the right way to go against those teams. But if you look at, take Crystal Palace, for example, Crystal Palace will sit in, they'll make it difficult for you. But when they get the ball, they're hitting those channels straight away with Zaha, with, I know Zaha's gone now, but talking about last season, with Eze, uh, with Elise, these players who can really, really hurt you. And my issue with this is, you know, if you want to hurt Liverpool, the blueprint is right there, literally from Bundesliga two teams in pre-season and from Leicester and from Bayern. If you want to hit Liverpool, sit in, get the ball. And when you get it, your two wingers go bombing and you find them and you will get space and you'll end up two on two uh, at the back with us. And you look at that bottom half, you know, your uh, especially your Palace, your Villas will hurt us. I know they didn't finish bottom half. Even Chelsea first day of the season, you know, Nkunku and Sterling and Jackson will be licking their lips at at those turnovers when we when we lose the ball. So I think there's a bit of a there's a real balancing act to be had here. McAllister and Sobislai and the front three will score goals. They will do it over and over again. But even against the bottom half, they're gonna create chances. And I worry that we're just gonna go one nil down in these games, like we have done a hell of a lot this season. And no matter who you're playing against in the Premier League, if you go 1-0 down, you make it very difficult for yourself. Yeah, that, that, that's all totally fair. It's totally fair. So look, we're, we're going to have to see how we go. Um, just before we wrap it up, how many do we get and who do we get, do you think? I really worry that we do love it and nothing else. Like we haven't really had a had a anything more than a tenuous tenuous link with anyone else. And you I know, saw I saw a tenuous link today, which I thought was interesting. What was that? Uh, Frank Kesse for like fifteen million. I right. think that I think that would make quite a bit of sense. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we we definitely at the very least in my mind. Well, we definitely need at least one more midfielder. On top of Lavia, at the very, very least. All right, and, here's here's and, probably a better, here's probably a better question. I think we do too. Okay. Yeah. Would you prefer two midfielders or a midfielder and a defender? <laughs> probably gonna cop out, and you're gonna have to give me names. Well, who, who is a midfielder and who's a defender? I don't have to give you names. Say the midfielder's Lavia, and then do you, so. Say we sign so, Lavia. Do you want if you only if you only have one more? Yeah. Do you want another midfielder, or do you want the centre half? It depends who they are. Throw out a name, and I'll tell you for each of those. Uh, I don't know, Van de whatever his name is, and Van de Ven. I him and Frank Kesse. I'll probably take Van de Ven. Uh, you know, I, I do think if you know if we get another midfielder, there will be on the cheap, and whether that's like a Frank Kessie who's established, but a little bit cheap, or whether it's like an Andre who you know you're, it's like basically signing the Caicedo before Caicedo makes the intermediary move, and then all of a sudden costs ninety million. Um, we might do another one like that. I'd be I'd be really pleasantly surprised if they do Lavia another midfielder and a left side centre back. Yeah, I, I, I like that's we do that, and you may be looking at it going, we we have an outside chance here. Yeah, but it's I think we have an outside chance if we sign Lavia 
alone and literally the back four stays fit for the whole season and the midfield stays fit for the whole season. Yeah, but see what you're saying there. That's a that's a that's that's rainbows and unicorns. Yeah, exactly. You know, so um yeah, that, it's a shame that, we're not in the it's a shame we're not in the European Cup because Allison, Trent, Van Dyke, Kanate, Robertson, Lavia, McAllister, Sobislai, and then your pick from the front five, your front three, you know, is a team good enough to win a European Cup, I think. Yeah, it is. You've got you've got Jones, you've got uh, Thiago sitting there in the background as well. Yeah. Um, and you haven't mentioned Harvey Elliott, you haven't mentioned, you know, Stefan Bischetz, and yeah, I get that. But I think if you look, for example, at, at, at City's back eight, essentially, like Laporte hardly plays last season. I know. Do you know? Is and and if you remember, the reason we won the league and City didn't was because Laporte was injured. Yeah. That was that was how they <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. All right, so um next time we'll look at Spurs for shits and giggles. Hopefully after Harry Kane's left, because that is like if if you think it's bad being a Liverpool fan when it comes to transfers, imagine being a Spurs fan. Because we all know Harry Kane is either gonna leave this season, in which case why is it just not get sorted now and get somebody in? Or he's going to leave next season on a free, which Daniel Levy's head would explode if happened. And um, we'll look at Chelsea. It's going to be fun. It's going to be loads of fun. Absolute basket cases there, Frank Center. Andy, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, until next time, up the Skinflint Reds. <laughs>